Good morning, Cadenceville Baptist Church. It's great to be back here. Uh, I bring you greetings from a sister congregation who also boasts in Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners. And so it's a joy to, to be back with you. Uh, as we begin our time in God's word, have you ever said the words, we're almost home? When? Maybe you're in traffic and you're coming home from running errands and you see your exit in the distance and there's a couple hundred sets of taillights in between you and your exit. And take a deep breath. We're almost home. Or maybe a delayed flight lands after an extended work trip. You're ready to see your family and a little pavement is the only thing between you and a hug in a hot meal. You throw your bags into the trunk, slam it shut, turn on your car, deep breath. We're almost home. Or think of one of those great movie scenes where there's a soldier who's back from a long deployment. A taxi cab drops him off at the end of a long farm driveway. He looks over the fence and up the hill at a house. Takes a deep breath. We're almost home. This morning, we're in one of those moments. After four centuries outside the land of Canaan, and after a 40-year journey through the wilderness, Israel is in the plains of Moab, looking across the Jordan River, overlooking home. Fatigue is strong. A lot has happened, and yet joy is present. The rolling hills and the fertile farmland lie peacefully across the Jordan River. Deep breath. We're almost home. Let's join them there in the plains of Moab, overlooking home. Please open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 26. The the book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. It was written by Moses, and it bridges from Mount Sinai, where God gives his people Israel the law, all the way to the edge of the promised land, where Israel will finally enter in to their homeland after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. You might consider the whole book of Numbers as a journey home. Some of you are thinking, Drew, the book of Numbers is the Bible in a year boneyard. I know. I've been there. I've quit in February too. But admittedly, there are some tedious details in Numbers. But if we miss out on the book of Numbers, we miss out on a part of God's heart. Every book, every chapter, every word is intended for God to reveal what he is like and to give us true life and true joy in him. So my prayer for today is that numbers might spring up with life for you, that it might thrill your heart, that you might see that if we miss the book of numbers, we're not only missing out on Israel's journey from the from Sinai to the promised land, we're missing out on part of God's heart that he wants us to know. So, will you trust me? Can we go there together? All right, let's go. 
So the book of Numbers gets its name from two numbers, more specifically two different censuses. A census is simply a head count of the population. The Lord commands Moses to count the people of Israel two different times. First, in the opening chapters of Numbers, the Lord commands Moses to count the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the first major stop for Israel after God brings them out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. God does it by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. And so we'll call this first fortunate group of emancipated slaves the Exodus generation. Their sons are counted as they come out of Egypt at Sinai. Then in our chapter, in Numbers 26, the Lord asked Moses to count the people again in the plains of Moab. The plains of Moab is Israel's last stop before entering into the promised land. Across the Jordan River is a city called Jericho. Jericho is where the conquest of the promised land begins. So this second number is the conquest generation, the sons of Israel who will enter into the promised land. All right, so are we clear on the two different numbers? So number one, census number one, the people the Lord rescued out of Egypt and walked out of slavery. And then census number two, the people that the Lord will lead into the promised land following after Joshua. Okay, so that's where numbers gets its name. Now, demographics are not the most important thing in these two headcounts. Y'all are in for a very boring sermon if all we care about is how many people are in Israel. <laughs> so up front, it's about 600,000 adult men. Our goal is to ask a bigger, a more important question. Who has an inheritance in God's promised land? Numbers 26 has the answer. So our chapter is going to draw attention to three different groups of people. So first, in verses 1 to 56, we're going to count the warriors. Then, in verses 57 to 62, we're going to count the ministers. And lastly, in verses 63 to 65, we're going to count the survivors. I pray the Lord will give us insight not only into the size of Israel's population count, but the rest that the Lord holds out to those who trust in him. So let's begin. First, Moses counts the warriors. In this first point, we're going to read 56 of the 65 verses. Get ready for lots of strange names and lots of words that end in it. Don't let that distract you. Try to understand the scene. We'll talk about the important details together. We're going to count the 12 tribes of Israel. So here we go. Numbers 26, verse 1. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward from their father's houses, all in Israel who were able to go to war. And Moses and Eliezer the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from twenty years old and upward, as the Lord commanded to Moses. The people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were, tribe number one out of twelve, Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, 
the sons of Reuben, of Hanak, the clan of the Hanakites, of Palu, the clan of the Paluites, of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites, of Carmi, the clan of the Carmites. These are the clans of the Reubenites, and those listed were 43,730. And the sons of Palu, Iliab, and the sons of Iliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are Dathan and Abiram, chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. When they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. When the company died, when fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. Tribe number two, the sons of Simeon, according to their clans, of Nemuel, the clan of the Nemuelites, of Jamin, the clan of the Jaminites, of Jachin, the clan of the Jachinites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites, of Shaul, the clan of the Shaulites. These are the clans of the Simeonites, 22,200. Tribe number three, the sons of Gad, according to their clans, of Zephon, the clan of the Zephonites, of Haggai, the clan of the Haggites, of Shuni, the clan of the Shunites, of Ozni, the clan of the Oznites, of Eri, the clan of the Erites, of Arid, the clan of the Eridites, of Areli, the clan of the Aralites. These are the clans of the sons of Gad as they were listed, 40,500. Tribe number four, the sons of Judah were Er and Onan. And Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah, according to their clans, were of Shelah, the clan of the Shelanites, of Perez, the clan of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites. The sons of Perez were of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites, of Hamul, the clan of the Hamulites. These are the clans of Judah, as they were listed, 76,500. Tribe number five, the sons of Issachar, according to their clans, of Tola, the clan of the Tolites, of Puvah, the clan of the Punites, of Jashub, the clan of the Jashubites, of Shimron, the clan of the Shimronites, these are the clans of Issachar, as they were listed, 64,300. Sixth tribe, the sons of Zebulun, according to their clans, of Sarad, the clan of the Saradites, of Elon, the clan of the Elonites, of Jalil, the clan of the Jalilites. These are the clans of the Zebulonites, as they were listed, 60,500. Halfway point. Y'all still with me? Yes. All right. We're going to keep going. Tribe number seven. The sons of Joseph, according to their clans, Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Manasseh, of Machir, the clan of the Machirites, and Machir was the father of Gilead, of Gilead, the clan of the Gileadites. These are the sons of Gilead, of Eazer, the clan of the Eazerites, of Helic, the clan of the Helicites, of Asriel, the clan of the Asrielites, of Shechem, the clan of the Shechemites, of Shemida, the clan of the Shemidites, and of Hepher, the clan of the Hepherites. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, had no sons, but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Milcah, and Tirzah. These are the clans of Manasseh, and those listed were 52,700. Tribe number eight. These are the sons of Ephraim, according to their clans. Of Shuthalah, the clan of the Shuthalahites. Of Beker, the clan of the Becherites. Of Tahan, the clan of the Tahanites. And these are the sons of Shuthalah, of Aaron, the clan of the Aaronites. These are the clans of the sons of Ephraim, as they were listed, 32,500. These are the sons of Joseph, according to their clans, meaning Manasseh and Ephraim. Tribe number nine, 
the sons of Benjamin, according to their clans, of Bela, the clan of the Belites, of Ashbel, the clan of the Ashbelites, of Ahiram, the clan of the Ahiramites, of Shephupham, the clan of the Shuphamites, of Hupham, the clan of the Hufamites. And the sons of Bela were Ard and Naaman, of Ard, the clan of the Ardites, of Naaman, the clan of the Namites. These are the sons of Benjamin, according to their clans, and those listed were 45,600. Tribe number 10. These are the sons of Dan, according to their clans. Of Shuham, the clan of the Shuhamites. These are the clans of Dan, according to their clans. All the clans of the Shuhamites, as they were listed, were 64,400. Tribe number 11. The sons of Asher, according to their clans. Of Imnah, the clan of the Imnites. Of Ishvi, the clan of the Ishvites. Of Beriah, the clan of the Beraites. Of the sons of Beriah. Of Heber, the clan of the Heberites. Of Malkiel, the clan of the Malkielites. And the name of the daughter of Asher was Sarah. These are the clans of the sons of Asher as they were listed. 53,400. In the final tribe, the sons of Naphtali, according to their clans. Of Jazeel, the clan of the Jazilites. Of Guni, the clan of the Gunites. Of Jezer, the clan of the Jezerites. Of Shilam, the clan of the Shilamites. These are the clans of Naphtali, according to their clans. And those who were listed were 45,400. This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. Here's the gist of what just happened. The Lord commanded Moses to count all the men of Israel who are able to go to war. Then Moses and Eliezer, the new high priest, relay the message to Israel who execute the headcount, counting up the 12 tribes of Israel. The final tally is 601,730 men who are able to go to war. Moses just counted the warriors. Moses and Aaron did this exact same exercise at Mount Sinai in Numbers 1. Why the repeat? Well, 40 years has gone by. A lot can happen in 40 years. A lot has happened in 40 years. But before we get to what has happened, let's go and understand the number that's right in front of us. 601,730 warriors. Before we get going on the main point of the text, let's clear away one hurdle in our gender-confused, gender-distinction-hating world. This census is counting the adult men as a way of accounting for all the tribes of Israel. The structure of this count is according to the male heads of households and the families under their headship. If this makes you uncomfortable on the inside, may I kindly point out in this text whose idea this was. Look at verse 1. The Lord said, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who were able to go to war. Counting Israel this way, counting by their father's households, counting men who were able to go to war was God's idea. For many today, maybe even for some in this room, your heart bristles at this idea. Counting the men, male headship, by their father's houses. Again, let me just kindly point out who you're picking a fight with. You're not picking a fight with Moses. It was the Lord who commanded Moses to count Israel this way. 
These fights on school boards and in culture to make gender fluid as an attempt to aim at gender equality fail to miss that the worth of male and female is already settled. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As Christians, we have got a much more objective place to stand for the value uh, and dignity and worth and equality of men and women. And it's because women are so valuable that the Lord says, men, protect them. Go take hold of the land. We could say more about families, but again, this isn't the main point of our text. So let's get down into the primary reason that we're counting the men of fighting age, both in Numbers 1 and in Numbers 26. After Israel leaves Sinai, they know where they're going. They are headed back to the land of Canaan, the promised land that God promised to give the descendants of Abraham. Do you think that the people who currently inhabit that land are just going to give the keys of their cities over? There's no chance. So the current inhabitants of Canaan are ready. And Israel is headed into battle. In the same breath, Canaan is where Israel lived before going to Egypt. And the Lord made a promise to the descendants of Abraham that they were going to live there. So Israel isn't just headed into battle. Israel is headed home. How big is the army for conquering the pagan nations currently occupying the promised land? Our text tells us 601,730 troops. How does that compare to Mount Sinai? Well, it's almost exactly the same. At Sinai, Moses counted 603,550. Population growth was, well, flat. After 40 years in the wilderness, Israel didn't grammatically grow, but neither did it dramatically shrink. It only slightly went down. So what's the big deal? Here's part of the deal. For the population of Israel not to grow is pretty alarming at this point in the Bible. Here's a quick sketch of the headcount of Abraham's descendants. In Genesis 15, God makes a promise to one childless man, Abraham. He brings him outside and tells him to look at the stars of the sky. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. What follows is what you might call a population explosion. Abraham, in his old age, has a son, Isaac, who has another son, Jacob, who has 12 sons, the sons that, who are the heads of the tribes that we just read about. By the time that we get three generations down, Abraham's family has gone from one to 70. That's a lot of great-grandchildren. This 70-person family then moves to Egypt where Genesis concludes. Number, er, Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off and says this. Exodus 1.5 
All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. How fruitful were they? How greatly did they multiply? Well, we don't know exactly, but when Moses leads Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, it says that there were about 600,000 men on foot. This approximate number then gets specific in our Numbers 1 census at Mount Sinai, where Moses counts 603,550 men of fighting age. From 70 to 600,000 mature men in 400 years. That's a lot of babies. Here's how many babies. It means that for 20 consecutive generations, where the average Israelite 20-year-old bears three to four children who survive Mary and have three to four children of their own by age 20. That's exponential growth. Abraham's offspring really are becoming as numerous as the stars of the sky. God's promise is coming true. They can see it. They're surrounded by it. And now here, consider this. Israel's family leaving Canaan was 70 people. That could fit in this room. 600,000 adult men would pack out M&T Bank Stadium seven times. It would fill Camden Yards 13 times. It would sell out Hippodrome Theater 261 times. And that's just the mature men who are able to go to war. Think of the women and the children with them. Then suddenly, in the book of Numbers, flat. Peculiar, right? What happened? Let's keep reading. Verse 52. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to the lot between the larger and the smaller. This count of warriors is not only to size up the army, it's to divide up the inheritance. Israel is not only headed to war, Israel is headed home. And so this second census in the plains of Moab serves as the basis for allocating each of the tribe's inheritance in the promised land. Think about that for a second. The Lord is telling Moses to count up these families so that they can divide up a land that doesn't even belong to them yet. Dividing up land is usually a step that takes place after victory is won, not before. So here's the takeaway from counting up the warriors of Israel. 
Israel is headed home to the promised land. And the Lord has prepared an inheritance for him that he himself will give them. Now, let's count up the ministers. Point number two. If we look at the tribes that we read earlier in the chapter, there's a significant tribe missing. The tribe of Levi. The Levites served Israel as ministers in the tabernacle. Their specific ministry roles were divided up by family. Most of the Levites took part in the transport, construction, and maintenance of the tabernacle. They took care of the fabrics and furniture and frames of God's tent. Of all the Levites, only the sons of Aaron could serve the Lord at his altar to give sacrifices. And the Levites weren't listed. They serve an important role, but they were excluded above. Why? Well, we see that in our text, it's on purpose. Pick up in verse 57. This was the list of the Levites according to their clans. Of Gershon, the clan of the Gershonites. Of Kohath, the clan of the Kohathites. Of Merari, the clan of the Merarites. These are the clans of Levi, the clan of the Libnites, and the clan of the Hebronites. The clan of the Malites, and the clan of the Mushites. The clan of the Korahites. And Kohath was the father of Amram. And the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. She bore to Amram Aaron, the first high priest, and Moses and Miriam, their sister. And to Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And those listed were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward. For they were not listed among the people of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. The Levites are listed separately and the ministers are excluded from the census that is the basis for allocating out the land of promise. They have no part in the inheritance. Sounds like a lawsuit, right? Did the Levites do something wrong leading to their exclusion from the will? No. The Levites did not do something wrong. They were not excluded on the basis of any offense. And this text isn't saying that ministers can't own property. It's saying that the Levites were set apart as holy. Three times in the book of Numbers, the Lord says, the Levites shall be mine. Let me read one of them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn that opens the womb from among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. The ministers miss out on the land, but they belong to the Lord. At this point, the census should be complete. The warriors stand ready to go into war and receive the land allotments. The ministers are counted and ready to serve. It's time to go to war. It's time to go home. Shouldn't our chapter just end there? Let's go take possession of the land that the Lord is giving as our inheritance. 
but we still got a couple more to count. Point number three. Let's count the survivors. Look at verse 63. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. 603,730 warriors, 23,000 ministers, two survivors. In a final summary note, our number gets shockingly dark. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses in Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. What happened? Promised land in the distance. Deep breath. We're almost home. This isn't the first time that Israel has said those words. Turn to Numbers 14. The setting is Kadesh on the southern edge of the promised land. Forty years earlier. The Lord has already emancipated Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And walked them on dry land across the Red Sea. And led them with a pillar of cloud by day. And a pillar of fire by night to Sinai. Then after giving him uh, Israel his law. The Lord marches Israel straight from Sinai to Kadesh. And then he tells them. Spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving the people of Israel. That's Numbers 13 two. Spies go out. Report comes in. Here's part of the report. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. If you're Israel, what do you do? What do you do? The report comes in. The land is good. You've seen the Lord's power. You saw what he did to Pharaoh. You saw what he did to Pharaoh's army. You saw what he did to the Red Sea. The glory of God shows up in your camp at your place of worship. What do you do when the Lord says, send out spies? And the spies come back and say, the land flows with milk and honey. I'll tell you what you do. You say, thank you, Lord, for a land flowing with milk and honey. If you're promising to give this land to us, then I want to be on the receiving end. Tragically, that is not what happens. Look at Numbers 14, verse 1. This is the turning point of the whole book and the explanation why no one 
in the Sinai census survives. Verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Do you ever think that a visible sign from God might shield you from ever turning away your allegiance from him? Try this on. Seeing God wrench open the hand of the mightiest leader in the world walking where footsteps have never tread with fish looking down on you because the Lord has made a dry path through the sea having God's own glory show up at your site of worship and hearing the very voice of God thunder over Mount Sinai Might these signs qualify as the type of thing that would win your unwavering allegiance to God? Think again. People who saw these things despised the Lord and did not believe in him. And fathers, consider Israel's reason for rejecting the land. It was to protect their wives and children. I hope we love our wives and protect them. I hope we love our children and protect them. But there are occasions and there are occasions for wisely laying down to hide. But those occasions are never when the Lord commands us to stand up and lead out with courage. The Lord responds to Israel's rejection of the land. Look down at chapter 14, verse 27. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked generation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. 
and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. Friends, you want to know what's worse than the blind eyes of a contagious virus? The all-seeing promise of God That death is coming for you. If you don't know God and aren't sure whether he can be trusted, these are the kinds of texts that cause people to hate God. But let me put all my cards on the table. Numbers is not the first and it's not the only occasion that the Lord speaks in this way. In fact, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, God cursed Mankind, such that everyone who sins against him will die. Do you know anyone who has escaped this? Think of all the lines that are in each of our respective families. Do you know anyone who has escaped the Lord's curse of death? God's displeasure is against sin and sinners. We bear iniquity. But in his great love, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He bore our iniquity. He took our sins in his body on the tree. He offered the perfect priestly sacrifice by laying down himself such that the punishment of God might not fall on us, but on him. The good news of Christianity is not that we will avoid death. It is that there is one who has conquered death for us. Isn't that happy news? Nobody escapes the promises of God. Both in salvation and in judgment. For proof, look at Moses' census at Sinai. It now serves as an exhaustive list for those sentenced to death before God. 40 years of wandering, not aimlessly, but purposefully, waiting for time to continue forward so that life can expire. Each day, the Lord providing bread from heaven to sustain life. And each day, another day to move forward so that by its progress of time, more and more bodies die. Simultaneously, each day, progressing time toward the end of another life and another life 
and another and another and another until that same group of people that could pack out all those stadiums consider all the funerals for all those people to die in 40 years. Funeral after funeral, corpse after corpse for 40 years until the entire adult generation that came out of Egypt is dead. What a haunting thought. That that first list when Moses counted at Sinai, now a list of those who need to die before entering into the promised land. A list of those who experience the greatest deliverance in the entire Old Testament turns into a list of prerequisite deaths before entry into the land. With each dead body hitting the dust, another life lost, another name crossed off the list, and yet another step closer to home. Every funeral, a heartbreaking testimony that the Lord keeps his word. His judgments stand even while men fall. Cadenceville Baptist Church, fear the Lord. Serve him only. Remember our scripture reading from Hebrews. This is the warning in Hebrews. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of rebellion. This is the warning in the book of Hebrews and it's the warning in the book of Numbers. These people who died in the wilderness were an example for us to avoid. For as we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? But those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter Because of unbelief. The scripture rightly funnels down over 600,000 warriors to two known survivors. There is no safety outside of faithfulness to God. This second census in the plains of Moab serves as written confirmation that the Lord keeps his word in judgment. The faithless generation who grumbled and rejected the land is dead. Out of 603,550 adult men, only two remained. And we know their names. Caleb and Joshua. They are literally the last men standing. And notice the complete and exhaustive equity. Not one of them was left. The full number who rebelled becomes the full number who die in the wilderness. Except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. The full number of faithful spies becomes the full number of survivors. Those who doubted the Lord's promise to give them the land died outside the land. And those who believed the Lord lived to enter into it. We must persevere in faith. 
We must persevere knowing that God will keep his covenant promises. That is the warning in the book of Hebrews and in our passage. But friends, don't just look at the parents who died in the wilderness. Look at the children too. The good news in our passage is that God made a promise to the children of Abraham. He is going to bring them into the land of rest and he will do it. Sin does not get the last word and it does not destroy the promises of God. There is hope. The rebellion of the people does not get the last word. God does. And he says, your children who you thought would become a prey are going to enter in to inherit the land. After a 40-year detour in the wilderness, this new generation of Israel has heard the warning of God. And now they will follow Joshua into the promised land. Joshua. Even his name means the Lord is salvation. And the Lord will deliver his people into the promised land. And in that promised land, generations later, another census is coming. It will drive a pregnant virgin to a stable. And there, in a feeding trough for farm animals, a warrior a minister, a survivor will be born. They will call his name Jesus. Even his name means the Lord is my salvation. He is the warrior who crossed over the Jordan River, stood toe to toe with Satan and came out victorious. He is the minister who will lay down his life on that cursed tree as the perfect high priest, not laying down a bull or a goat, but himself as a perfect atoning sacrifice for sinners. And he is the lone survivor, more than that, the lone conqueror of death, who is leading to a greater exodus, to a greater heavenly promised land of rest. Friends, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Friends, that last time is coming. The journey may be long, but remember, the promises of God always come true, both in judgment and in salvation. Church, our great Savior has made a promise to us. He says, I am coming back for you. And when he does, we will follow him home into a land of eternal rest. So raise your weary eyes. Look and see. There is a land beyond that river death. A place where Jesus himself sits enthroned. Take a deep breath. 
And let the peace of Christ comfort your soul. We're almost home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the days in the wilderness do feel long. And Lord, it is a heavy burden to live in a creation cursed with death. Lord, who will escape? And yet, Lord, we do praise you as the God who has entered into your creation, who has had pity on sinners and has made a way for us, those who have borne iniquity against you, to be forgiven. Father, we praise you. Lord, we boast in the name of Jesus, our great and mighty conqueror, the one who is leading us into a place of heavenly rest. Heavenly Father, would we fear you all of our days? Lord, would you persevere the faith of everybody here in this room? And Lord, would you bring us all into that place of heavenly rest with you? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.